thanks for uh, coming on the show. Welcome to the Dope Post. This is, uh, what part of California are you in right now? Uh, I'm in Saratoga, which is, uh, which is a town. It's about 15 minutes south of San Jose. And, uh, I'm living with my girlfriend. I, I, um, I moved from Hawaii to California my senior year of high school. So that's, we started dating in high school. I, I lived in this area for a year. So that's, yeah. So now I've been here for two and a half months. Oh, okay. Yeah. What did you just move to California because of the the volleyball scene here? Yeah, or? yeah. It was it was mainly for volleyball. Um, played on a competitive club volleyball team, and um, yeah, it was just kind of. I already knew I was going to Harvard at that point, so I, my parents, said okay, and it was my idea, so did it, and it all worked out. You, so you knew you knew like ahead of time that you were going to Harvard already. So. Uh, I knew like by the end of my junior year that if I didn't, you know, get arrested or get an F in a class, I would be accepted to Harvard. So okay. that, I mean that that was nice going into senior year because everyone around me was, you know, as, as you probably went through, like kind of freaking out, applying to like you know, in some cases twenty twenty five schools, and I was like. I mean, I wasn't trying to boast it, but I was like, yeah, I already know what school I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was nice. Well, I was thinking of uh, what to do for the pod today. And I I think it'd be best if we just like, uh, just talk, uh, talk about your life a little bit and just like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just want to talk about you growing up in Hawaii and then starting a, a new life at Harvard as a college student. And then we'll just go all the way up to like, your interest with the salary cap and just wanting to work for front office. So sure. tell me what it was like for you uh, growing up in Hawaii. Uh, and h- like, how did you come into sports? Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in the president's home on the campus of Punahou school where uh, Obama went to school because my dad, when I was born until last year, was the president of the school. So it was this uh, school building that we lived in. Like, think of it as a mini White House of sorts. Like, we, okay. didn't, we didn't own it. We were just kind of the family that uh, was living there. And now that there's a new president, his family is living there. So it was a really um, unorthodox childhood. I There were, like, these fancy parties at my house every night that I would have to, you know, sneak into the kitchen to get some food. Uh, and I obviously walked to school every day because the house was like in the middle of campus. So uh, yeah, it was kind of a weird childhood, but there was some normalcy in that I played a couple sports growing up. I started with uh, baseball, got into basketball in first grade and started playing volleyball in third grade. And uh, I was on competitive travel teams for both basketball and volleyball. And then at the age of 13, I decided to focus on volleyball. Um, and I always, I mean, from maybe like 13 or 14 years old, I realized that volleyball could get me into like a prestigious college. That was, I, I, I love playing volleyball, but I knew that there was kind of a bigger goal and that it could get me to a place that, Maybe I couldn't go without it. Um, so I started the whole, you know, going to college camps, doing USA Volleyball 
stuff like that. Um, but the hard thing about college volleyball is, at least men's college volleyball, is there's only about 20 or 25 Division One schools, and there's very there's a limited number of scholarships. Um, and at Ivy League schools, Harvard and Princeton, there are no scholarships. So there was not a lot of schools to choose from if I wanted to play Division One. Um, and I play the position of setter, which is kind of like the quarterback, um, kind of lead the offense. But schools don't recruit setters every single year. It's kind of a every other thing, every other year thing at best. Um, so Stanford wasn't recruiting a setter. Princeton wasn't recruiting a setter. And, you know, there's some very solid schools, um, UC schools. UCI is a very good team, um, but I kind of put all my eggs into the Harvard basket. They were recruiting a setter and uh, just kind of went along with the recruiting process and got me to Harvard. Yeah. So is this like the right timing for you then with Harvard looking for a setter just when mm -hmm. you were about to look, you were looking for schools? Yeah, it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, I still think back like, you know, just in the off chance that Harvard wasn't recruiting a setter that year, like where would I be today? I, I'm not sure. I'm I'm a I'm a triple legacy at Stanford. So growing up, that was always the school that um, I wanted to go to. So it was, you know, a little heartbreaking when I heard that Stanford wouldn't couldn't like help with my application, really, because they weren't recruiting my position that year. Um, but yeah, I'm I've enjoyed my experiences at Harvard so far, and I think everything worked out. So when they're looking for a setter, are they just looking for exactly one setter, like for that for for that year? And you just uh, happen yes. to be, yeah, yeah. So there's um, there's usually two or three setters on a team, but um, there so, so there's setters and hitter is another important position in in volleyball. But you can kind of recruit a lot of hitters, and they rotate around and can play different spots on the court, but there's only one setter on the court at any given time. So yeah, there were maybe four or five guys that Harvard was recruiting and I was kind of freaking out. You know, the, you, you always ask yourself the question, like how do I stand out more so than these other guys? And I, I had known all these guys before, but you know, college camps and different tournaments and stuff like that. So it was a pretty nerve wracking process, honestly, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's, worked in my favor yeah and then you said when you were 14 or 13 you started to strategize about like which sports can really take you to college so mm -hmm. why why was it why was it volleyball back then and not basketball or baseball yeah so i had played basketball for a couple of years and you're six uh, five and buddy buddy yeah, scott you're six yeah. five which is i don't know i and it's it's tall for hawaii standards because I, they're just there's not many six five people in Hawaii so I but then so I so I, I'd always grown up as like a big man like a center um and then I quickly realized from watching you know college basketball NBA basketball that six five is not actually that tall in relative terms so right uh I just and but six five for a setter in volleyball is quite tall it's probably above average so I just realized that volleyball could probably take me places that basketball could not. Um, and another thing that 
made me kind of choose volleyball is from the age of 11 to 14. So for, for four straight years, my volleyball team either, either came first or second in the nation, uh, which kind of led me to believe like, you know, I was actually like pretty good at volleyball and I had no idea how good I was at basketball. And obviously there's so many people that play basketball, but I realized like this could be like a serious thing for me. I could actually take it to the next level. Yeah. All right, buddy, I'll be honest before this interview, I just had like a, like a little fear in my head just because you, you seem, you're like a very humble guy, but I had a fear in my head that you were like possibly college's greatest, greatest of all time volleyball player. So I had to like, I, I Googled you just to make sure like I wasn't going to mess this up and you're, and you had like ESPN articles written about you or, or, or something. So, um, so Hawaii versus California. How, how do you like the two uh, different states? Well, people would like to think they're somewhat similar, but I think they're actually really different having lived in both. Uh, people don't realize that in Hawaii, uh, whites are definitely in the minority. Uh, and I think it's the only state where uh, Caucasians are the minority race. So I'm, uh, I'm a majority white, but I'm also Chinese and native Hawaiian. So growing up, uh, like people in California would just see me as like, you know, maybe multiracial, but probably just this white kid. It would just seem, I I look kind of normal, but in Hawaii, there's so few white people that, you know, I, I definitely got some looks growing up being tall and being looking pretty Caucasian. Um, and Hawaii definitely has a kind of a laid back culture. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to go to school or go to college there. Um, it's just so disconnected from the rest of the world. Um, people don't realize it's, it's the most isolated chain of islands in, in the world. And, you know, you, you grow up and in school, you, hear that we are part of the United States. It's just that all of the other states are at least, you know, 2,500 miles away and you learn American history uh, and they don't really talk about the part how like native Hawaiians are living peacefully and, you know, white people took over the land. So there's a lot of kind of racial stuff that's not really talked about in, in Hawaii. But um, so moving to California, I had already been to, the mainland specifically California a lot for mostly for volleyball actually um so I I knew how California was and I I went to a I mean I went to a school in Mountain View amidst all of the you know the Silicon Valley kind of tech stuff which is the complete opposite from Hawaii where everyone's you know surfing and kind of as they say hanging loose you know <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was just really different. And I think another reason why I found California different is, like I said earlier, I had a very unorthodox childhood where I, you know, didn't have any neighbors. I walked to school every day. So in California, my senior year it was great to just like live in a normal house in a normal neighborhood and drive to school every day. And I just kind of felt like another, another kid, which I think was something that I was missing um, when I was growing up in, in Hawaii. 
That's right. So you lived in the president's house. So you had mm-hmm. no neighbors. So you you never got to experience, you know, midnight someone's making weird noises next door no. or something. Never. Wow. Nothing. I, I actually have a really interesting story to tell. Uh I was about twelve, maybe, and there's a there's a conference called NATO, which is uh it brought together all the top like Asian countries and in the US and uh and it just happened to be I think it was 2012 it was it was in in Hawaii and all these you know top foreign leaders were there and the night before the conference started they had each or there's like a group of leaders who had dinner at very you know fancy houses in in Hawaii and I never thought of my house as fancy but I guess because it's a school building it it was so all I knew was that uh my mom like kind of shipped me and my sister over to my grandparents house for the night and uh I found out later that the reason why they did that is it was like the president of China the president of Russia the CEO of Boeing the CEO of Google all of these like super famous people and my you know normal parents all had dinner together in my house and there were russian snipers perched in in my room uh and wow. when i heard about it the next day you know i i was 12 so i was like wow cool but it was only in the last year or two that i realized how like <laughs> crazy that that was that i, I mean <laughs> i mean that's that's just like i mean my my mom was the only female there each each person had like their own taste tester making sure that their food wasn't poisoned by by like someone else that was in the house it was just this kind of uh, this dinner of these people with so much power and they were all in my house and i wasn't there so it isn't actually that cool but it yeah I, i just think it's a cool story about how crazy growing up in the president's house was yeah, your 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 experience I always thought was exclusive to, you know, the kids that are living in the actual White House. I didn't mm-hmm. think any other kids outside the White House could have like a similar experience like you. I mean, I'm I'm not comparing myself to, you know, Malia Obama who I actually go to Harvard with her now and she she occasionally has like paparazzi following her around and I'm I'm sure like her life was a lot more scrutinized than mine was right. people don't care that much about the president of a high school but just the fact yeah having having no neighbors having constant parties in your house uh that are kind of formal parties not what you would think of as like a party that a kid would want to be at you know yeah uh, yeah there so I, I i yeah i'm a less yeah i'm i'm not on the, the obama's level but it was definitely a weird childhood. Okay. And then something I've always wanted to ask college athletes is when you get recruited by your school, and especially if it's Harvard, like, do your grades also have to be like pretty top notch as well as your athletic ability? Yeah. So I emailed the Harvard coach at the beginning of my junior year. And I had emailed a few coaches before then, and their their first question is like, can we see some film of you playing volleyball? Harvard's first question was, we need to see a transcript, and have you taken oh. the SAT yet? Uh, and once I, because they get so many emails, because it's, it's Harvard, right? So 
I would, I mean, I've now heard my coaches say that, you know, 90 to 95% of the kids that email them don't get past the transcript part of it. So I guess my transcript was deemed good enough, but then they asked about volleyball was the second thing. And, um, but yeah, in, I can't speak for some of the other schools, but at least at Harvard and Princeton for men's volleyball, um, there's pretty high uh, academic standards. They, there's like a minimum, I think, of a 1,400 on the SAT, or they won't even consider you to like help you get in. Um, but I still had to go through the same process of like doing an interview with someone on, on campus and submitting the same application as everyone else. I, I don't maybe think that's true for maybe football or basketball, but yeah, I, my application process was the same as other applicants. I, I just got a earlier decision on it. So you had to get through the academic hoop for Harvard. You had to get through just like volleyball ability. And you also had to be lucky that they were just looking for a setter at the time. Mm -hmm. And those, all three of those managed to work out for you. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah, That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk about let's talk about Harvard. Everyone, everyone thinks like Harvard is just this really, you know, we, we only know Harvard through the lens of like TV shows about colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, any 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 stereotypes from TV about Harvard or just like Ivy Leagues in general that's just like totally false that you can report on? Yeah, so I I had probably heard the same things that you've heard about Harvard before I started my freshman year like I just assumed that you know the most people had like you know found a cure to cancer or like done all this research or like published or just did these extraordinary things like I I knew that I mean I had solid academics but the main reason I or a big reason why I got in is because of what I can do on a volleyball court I guess but you know these other people that got in without that kind of help they must be you know super smart like how how am I gonna how am I gonna compare to them in the classroom? I mean, I, I work hard in school, but I'm not some genius. And one of the things that I was taken aback by is almost I would say like at least ninety five percent of the people that I've met are just the most down to earth people ever. And yeah, they're smart and can maybe get like a perfect on a test without studying, which I wish I could do. But they're just like people that actually care about how how you're doing and it's not as cutthroat as you'd think because people aren't aren't I don't know sabotaging others for grades um and that that's been something that has been a great revelation for me that I I know that I can count on my classmates and it's a lot more welcoming environment than maybe I thought it would be going into it how when you're when you're in a Harvard class do you do do you feel like this amazing pressure on you to like have to pay attention or do are are there Harvard students who take naps in classes is what I'm trying to get. Yes. There, I do not want to speak poorly of Harvard on the, on the acclaimed dough post, but (laughs) there, there, there are people that are just like sleeping in class and, and I'm like, I mean, they obviously weren't like this in high school to get into Harvard and, then you know later i i find out they still did better than me on the test even though they weren't paying attention at all but yes there 
there's I it's not like everyone is totally paying attention and everyone's asking questions and all that it's and that's honestly how I thought it would be I was pretty scared going into my freshman fall of like how I would fit in and in a classroom environment but now people are pretty normal you know you have I mean you you know you always have your you know front row teachers pets kind of people but most of the people are pretty chill just trying to navigate their way through college life so yeah I was like searching my school up on google one time um UCI and then it, mm-hmm. I, I saw that it's classified as like a, a public ivy school so then like as in you know similar or same level of education as the ivy leagues so then i remember just like walking around my school and just like really thinking about that and then i, I was just wondering you know like i maybe 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 my school could is similar to an ivy league in terms of just like how many um researchers on campus or how many doctoral uh yeah how many phds on campus teaching so yeah i've always wondered about that yeah, I, I have a lot of friends that go to UCI, actually, and they, they're one of the few schools that have a men's volleyball team, so I was actually talking to their coach and considering them, too. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've only heard great things about UCI academics, and I would definitely take your weather and location over mine. Um, yeah. That, that's for sure. I've actually been to a couple men's volleyball games at UCI. They're, they're really? pretty fun, yeah. It's just too yeah. too bad that that when I went they they lost, but you know I had fun. <laughs> yeah, um, UCI has always been one of the best teams in the country, and they they're supposed to next year come to Harvard for a match. Um, we're we're supposed to play them. I a don't know if any teams have the budget to do that, or b whether our season's even happening next year. But that I, we were supposed to play UCI, and I have some friends and former teammates on that team so I, I was excited to see them all right i'm excited hopefully it happens i just no one knows at this point yeah i've noticed the volleyball players and the basketball players they stand out they stand out at the uci crowd everyone knows yeah. like everyone yeah. knows uh, yeah. well i mean on on the uci team there's a couple guys that are over seven feet which is rare in men's volleyball i mean in any sport but it's, but yeah there's not a lot of seven footers and UCI is two of them and men's volleyball and they're both pretty good. So, And then I want, I want to ask about what it's like for you as a college athlete and then having to take classes, econ classes. And I, I feel like you're, I feel like you're probably going to try and do well in those classes. So I, I've seen, you know, I've heard like most, a lot of college athletes, they tend to major in something that are like where classes are like a little easier. Mm-hmm. And as an econ major, I know like econ, econ classes aren't all easy to take. So what's it like for you with just like studying and just like keeping in shape and playing games and yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely a unique balance. And what I quickly learned is if you want to do well in volleyball and school or just a sport that you play in school, like those have to be your two main priorities. Um, and I think it's a pretty healthy lifestyle, honestly. Um, it, you know, it sucks getting up at 6 a.m. for a morning practice and then having to rush straight to a class when you know that everyone else in the class just slept in and walked straight to the class and you just completed, let's say, like an hour workout and then two hours of playing volleyball. But, I, I mean, I knew what I was getting myself into. It's 
definitely a grind. Um, so that's why this quarantine period was so weird when I was like, school was the only thing that I was doing. And I just had so much more time to like study and do other, you know, side projects and stuff like that. So that, that was really cool to kind of experience a couple months as, you know, like a non-athlete in a college setting. But as far as economics goes, um, I knew before I even went to Harvard that that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I just, I, well, we'll probably talk about this later, but I've always connected economics to sports and kind of the salary cap stuff that I'm interested in, but economics and maybe at other schools too, but at Harvard is kind of seen as for some people is kind of like the chill major for athletes. And I think that's true just because economics, like at its, the, the fundamentals of economics make sense to someone where if you're maybe don't have the time to, to give it your best effort, like you can still, I don't know, get like a decent grade in the class. But what I've found is that you really, really need to study if you want to, you know, get more than a B in an economics class is there's some stuff you, you probably know that, that de- doesn't come to you right away and, and takes a lot of studying and just practice with it. So I, I get kind of annoyed when, when people say, oh yeah, you're just an athlete that's an economics major, but I, I find this stuff really interesting. And in now that I've finished the basic classes, um, I can take electives that more relate to like the sports world and the stuff that I'm interested in, like applying economics to other fields. That is so Harvard to me, I think, where, oh, he's a, just an athlete taking economics. Yeah. It's, that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I, know a, I know a basketball player at UCI on the men's team, and he's majoring in, I think, engineering, some kind of engineering. But wow. he's also one of like the best basketball players on our team. So just crazy how like I think if I was an athlete, I'd definitely pick economics over like engineering or some other STEM major. Yeah. I I just feel like it's so applicable to anything you want to go into um after college. I mean, even if you don't do something that's related to economics, at least you have this basic understanding of, you know, how money works in the world around you and a micro and a macro level and I've, I've enjoyed all the classes that I've, I've taken and you're on top of that you're a self-described salary cap geek of the nba so like do yes. you even have time do you even have time to yes, watch I nba am. games during your during your schedule uh i try i mean i i have league pass and i try to watch as many games as i can but honestly it's usually like having a game on in the background while I'm doing a problem set of some sort. I don't just like watch an NBA game and that's the only thing that I'm doing at a given time. I I wish I had more, more time to do that. Um, And hopefully I'll have more time once the NBA starts back up uh, before school starts. But yeah, it's, uh, I definitely don't have the time that I want to just watch as many games as possible, but I mean, I, I know that, you know, the NBA will hopefully always be there, but the experiences that I have in college won't be. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to balance like living in the moment of college, but also like being super, super into the salary cap minutia and like all of the weird uh, 
small stuff that no one really cares about in the NBA that I am like a geek about. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of stuff that you have to keep your focus on every day yes. at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm sure like another thing you, uh, that you would have a focus on is, um, so volleyball, of course, playing games and studying and, but like, I just, you know, I just saw like something, saw an article you wrote and it said you're part of like the Harvard sports analysis collective. Mm-hmm. So like, tell me about that. Is that like the equivalent of a sports business association club in the country, but this one is more about, you know, analysis? Yeah. Um, I think it's similar to any kind of sports business, sports analytics program that other schools have. It's a sort of small club and there's no, there's no like application process really. It's just like show up to meetings and it's people who go to Harvard that care a lot about sports and it's, it's a wide range of sports. And um, some of it is just kind of talking at a table, just, you know, like your sports banter that, that are all sports fans like enjoy talking about. But another part of it is they try to put us on research projects using like statistical programs like R and Python to do work and kind of answer questions um, that that we were wondering in the sports world. So I'm one of the basket mainly focused on basketball people for the organization, but you know there's people in a wide range of sports. There we've had sailing articles on our website. Um, cricket and sports that you would not think that you could have an analytical side to but you totally can so I think the analytical movement that started in basketball about 10 years ago is branched off to almost every sport imaginable there's analysis and sailing yeah so like like, wait let me guess they're they're, (laughs) they're analyzing like the wind speeds or like the direction of the wind, stuff like that. I'm guessing. Yes. They just have these huge data sets and they spend hours trying to find meaning in them. And I honestly don't know much about sailing, but just being in the room with these really smart guys that are talking about it is, I mean, I, it just, I think hearing people talk about any sport um, just kind of makes you ask more questions questions in the sport that you actually care about so like maybe the questions that they're asking and sailing gets me thinking of questions um about the nba that i haven't considered before right yeah that's well said are there any other um orgs on campus that you're part of or any any um any orgs on campus that like everyone knows about but they're like very unique um like i'm a fan of comedy so like i know all about the harvard lampoon Mm-hmm. and all the comedians that come out of there and go on to do big things so yeah anything yeah. uh to say yeah i i mean there's there there's a lot of i mean i the the lampoon is a big organization on campus and they're widely known and obviously we know the comedians that have come out of that like conan and a bunch of people on saturday night live um and the office and stuff like that uh there's a lot of what are called final clubs at harvard which are um, very old clubs that you'd be surprised how many like former U.S. presidents have been a part of that they're very secretive and there's prominently long... prominently featured in the social net- network. Yes, movie. yeah. I, I, I actually recently watched that for the first time, and 
I don't want to say it's 100% accurate, but it gives a decent depiction as to the Harvard social scene. I, I don't have time to be a part of any of them. That's just not really my scene per se. Uh, but, you know, I, I have some friends that are part of them and uh, that's a different, a whole different kind of organization. But yeah, that's, that's uh, how other people spend a good amount of time on campus. So do you, do you spend any other time on campus with other orgs besides the uh, HSAC? Uh, I, I mean, I would like to, but between school volleyball and the sports analysis collective, I don't have much other free time. Um, I, so yeah, I, I'm pretty happy with the, those three things kind of being the key pillars in my college experience. Um, but yeah, that, those are kind of the three main things that I do. Gotcha. And then one more, one more stereotype Harvard question that I think might be a little more true than the others. Are there, can you talk about the acapella groups on Harvard and do they just, are there a lot, a lot of them and do they just, you know, sing into the night? Like, yeah, <laughs> there, there's a lot of acapella groups. Um, I had a, all right, have a friend who's in one of the main ones. I forget what it's called, but they kind of go around campus on random nights and sing in dining halls and, you know, they have a bunch of concerts and travel all around the world. My, my roommate actually is, is in a chorus um, and his uh, singing is like the main thing that he does. Uh, there's a lot of singing groups on campus. Um, there's acapella groups, but there's also like singing groups for different um, like ethnicities and racial background. There, there's like a Kumba group, which is uh, all African-American or I mean, just African too, uh, uh, group that, uh, sings during uh, commencement and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot of singing groups on campus. So that is a true stereotype for sure. Yeah, I figured. And then the Harvard, the whole idea of like the Harvard network, the Harvard family, overrated or underrated or just well-rated? Uh, I would say well-rated. It, it, I think it's definitely a good network to be a part of moving forward. Um, there's a lot of just Harvard people in general that have worked in a lot of different industries, um, the sports industry being one of them. And also as an athlete, we have access to what's called the Harvard, Harvard varsity club, which, um, is pretty much the same thing. It like connects you with, um, former athletes who work in different fields that are looking to help out current Harvard athletes navigate the labor market. So, yeah, I would say it's properly rated. Um, hopefully, you know, I could make a connection that could lead to some job that I want. And I know you've probably done this too, but like I've just spent, you know, a good amount of time on LinkedIn just looking at NBA employees and seeing where they went to school and like a good sure. amount of them, a good amount of them went to Harvard. Yeah, I I hope that works in my favor, but I obviously know that the main way to get a job in the NBA is your merit, not just the school you went to. I I know that's not what you were insinuating, but right, I, right. I, I know that I'm not, not, you know, you can't just count on the Harvard name to get to where you want to go. So hopefully I'm learning skills that can, you know, get me there. Right. A lot of Harvard and MIT Sloan I've seen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Harvard and MIT, yeah, they produce a lot of people, mostly in the analytics side of things. So I think there's been more people recently. But yeah, they, both of those schools have produced a lot of people in the sports world. Yeah. And then last year, SBC Sports Business Classroom, you were, I think you're, you might have been the youngest person there, right? Like you, you just finished freshman year of college. Yeah, there were a few other people that had just finished their freshman year, but I think I asked about their birthdays, and I think I was the youngest one by a little bit. Yeah. So how did you how did you discover SBC? I feel like I know the answer. You 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 listened to like Dunked On. Is that is that how? Yeah. So it was a combination of listening to Dunked On and uh, reading. I was actually reading Larry's uh, CBA FAQ, and there was. This, you know, an advertisement at, at the top that was like sports business classroom, like how, how to get into sports, like all immersive thing in the NBA, NBA summer league. And I was like, what, this, this thing exists. So I was one of the first people to sign up. And uh, as you probably went through as well, uh, it's hard to kind of articulate what exactly sports business classroom is to your parents uh, or like, it, like, it's pretty much an investment that's, you know, a couple thousand dollars to one day get into the basketball world. I, I thought it was a great investment, but as you could, you know, I, I don't know if you went through the same thing, but um, explaining to your parents that you're kind of trying to do an unconventional career path. That's not, you know, doctor, lawyer, all of that. My, my, my parents are pretty supportive of it, but I, I can imagine that, you know, it'd be hard for, young person to kind of rationalize to their parents what exactly it, it is was that the experience for you too well so larry actually works at uci i don't know yeah if you, yeah so mm-hmm. i found out about it because he went to my uh sports business club and he actually spoke there oh one wow night. that's how i met him and he told me about his uh his work with the salary cap and the faq and then he told me about the program and he told us like the cost that night and I just remember thinking like it was too much. (laughs) Yeah. I would, uh, luckily I didn't do this, but I was thinking that I would just not go last year. I would save money and then I'd go this year, which which I don't think it's happening this year. Yeah. Yeah. Which obviously was a, could have been a terrible decision, but, uh, that's what I decided to do until, um, the last night of the, his promotional discount deadline where he emailed me in the morning, like personally to just check in on me and ask if I had any questions. So I, I did, I I asked him, uh, you know, Hey, I'm young. I I don't really have that much real world life experience. I don't know if I can contribute. And he said, like, don't worry about it. We take people from everywhere. So then that, that just convinced me that like he was being really genuine and willing to help. So I applied and then that's how I got in. And then as to my parents, um, Luckily, I had some money saved up personally just from like working just like part-time jobs. So I didn't really need their <laughs> financial support. Uh, but I just, I did let them know what I was going to do. And all right, my parents, like they weren't born here and they don't care about basketball at all. They don't understand mm-hmm. that there's an, an industry of people that work in, in professional sports that don't play. So they're, they're just like very, very confused and it was like their first time hearing about it. So uh, my purpose was just to like let them know where I was going to be for one week in July. 
and you know they're kind of just they ask the the usual questions like so how does this relate to your major economics and yeah. will this help you get a job and you know those types of questions that I had to deal with but they were they were fine again because I, I I paid for it I, they didn't pay for it so yeah so when did you first get interested with the salary cap like at what age or was is this rec- fairly recently um I think only recently I've been like really into the nitty gritty parts of the salary cap, but I've, I've been interested in player contracts and professional sports for a long time. At at first it was the MLB. Actually, I would, I was playing just like the MLB, the show video game. And there's like this little thing that shows how much each person made. And I got really interested at just like making spreadsheets of like the payroll for each team. And I don't know, I was eight, so there wasn't much. You were eight and you were learning how to do yeah. this? Yeah. Well, wow. there, there wasn't much like analysis that my second grade mind could do, but I, I started asking the questions of like, why are they paying that player so much if it's, you know, batting average is only, you know, 230 or something. So they're very simple questions that I, I was asking. And then connecting on on the video game note I then started playing NBA 2k and they you know also have like player salary so I did the same thing and I was older this time so I could I could actually research like how the whole how how the whole salary cap and how the finances of the league work and just in the last year or two um, I've started doing my own cap sheets and understanding um, how player salaries work in the league. So that was the main reason that I I enrolled because I Larry's kind of the guru of it all. Um, I I always hear stories about how front offices always look or like consult his CBA FAQ when they're entering like the trade deadline to make sure they're following all the rules. So I knew there was no better person to learn from than him and Nate and Eric. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I got started into the salary cap. And I'm just kind of trying to learn a little bit more every day. I remember like sitting at a table with you during when we were doing the salary cap stuff. And I was just amazed at like how much you knew, even though, even though you were like one of the youngest people there at that, at, at the time, I was just like oh, freaking Harvard, man, <laughs> for this. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the reasons why I'm so interested in it is I feel like no matter how much I learn, there's some rule that I learn about that I hadn't heard of before. And another thing is, you know, the collective bargaining agreement gets renegotiated every couple of years and the rules could be drastically different. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is how like rule changes change incentives for teams and just how the league operates. Um, I've only really been focused on this CBA because I wasn't that I didn't I wasn't that knowledgeable and the NBA had previous CBAs but I'm interested in um, learning about when the next one comes out which could be pretty soon because they need to renegotiate a lot of like you know dates and stuff that aren't going to happen because the season got postponed so they're going to need to find ways to do all that and one thing about SBC I think is that it provides a lot of different um, different kinds of value for different kinds of people. So I think for me, going in, I you know 
you're imagine I'm like the only sports fan amongst my my group of my my circle. So then it kind of makes you make made me feel like I was, you know, already super smart about basketball and NBA. So, you know, for me, the FAQ, I think maybe for you, since you had a a foundation already, so you could, you know, benefit some more from that. But for me, it was just like a reality check right there where you don't know nearly as much as you think you, uh, you, you did. So like any, any, uh, any interesting things that you, from the, our salary cap lectures together that just like blew your mind or like you did not know about and just gave you like a reality check? Um, I think I knew or had heard of most of the things that they were talking about related to the salary cap because I had read the entirety of Larry's document. Um, but there, I think one of the realizations that I came to is just for like the people that are actually making decisions and like making trades, there is so much more that goes into it than just like, oh, I want to trade that player for this player. Because there's just like so many ramifications of any transaction that a team makes. And that that was something that it was hard for me to wrap my head around, but it, it became more clear as SBC went on. There are just so many like different provisions and exceptions. And I can only imagine what these teams probably have these huge, you know, whiteboards trying to map out every like, oh, if we do this plan, then then what's going to happen? Do you know our cap space in two years? And there, there's just so many questions that, I mean, I knew that teams had to answer these questions, but going to SBC and learning about all of these different rules that I had, you know, heard of, but hadn't really studied in the, in the way that we did at SBC, just made me think a little, a, a lot more about like how, much thinking goes in on the team side to all of these different transactions. Did it also surprise you when like Wes Wilcox was talking about how to evaluate players? So like mm-hmm. thinking about the salary cap ramifications of signing a player, but then from Wes's um, lecture, you also have to consider their basketball talent and their, their potential. And, you know, even just like simple things, like are they, are they a good person or not? Or are they a bad person? Which could totally make their salary cap projection like totally irrelevant if they're just, you know, a bad person to sign. Yeah. So I, I thought Wes was one of the most interesting speakers that I, I met at SBC because I mean, he, he was a GM in the NBA and that's, that's where I'm trying to go, but he approached it from more of the scouting side. Um, and so that, and I'm, I'm trying to approach it from more of like the salary cap side. So obviously I'm knowledgeable about the game of basketball to a certain extent, not as knowledgeable as maybe like a former player, but learning about just, I mean, he was just saying like the basics of scouting and how they build scouting databases, but that was just really cool because I, I know that I I need kind of an all all-encompassing view of the NBA that's not just player salaries. So it was really cool to hear him talk about all the things that they considered when he was with the Hawks about not just like players on court talent, but like, are they a good person? And like how, how he said, like they, they, before they draft someone, they try to like literally contact every person that this, that this prospect has like come into contact with recently. And they just like, because they just want to know as much information as possible to reduce risk because you're taking a huge risk by paying, you know, a teenager tens of millions of dollars. So I thought his perspective was 
fascinating. Um, and he, he also brought a scouting perspective to it, but then that was like more of day one. And then day two, it was more of like his GM perspective and like making mm-hmm. big decisions and u- using his scouting knowledge, but then having to make the hard calls and the hard decisions. So. Yeah. One of the, one of the best stories that Wes ever, or that, that I heard from Wes during that week is um, we were at the station where we were scouting a, a game and, uh, and Woj was giving a report maybe like 20 feet away. I heard about this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah and and um, everyone was like, oh, Woj. And we were all like taking pictures and videos of him. He wasn't really acknowledging us because he was busy. But um, And then Wes, Wes says, you know, Woj told me that I was named the GM of the Hawks before the Hawks told me that I was <laughs> named, named the GM. And I, I was like, wow. <laughs> Woj is so plugged in, but that, that Wes was just a great guy. He, yeah. I really hope he gets a job in this league sometime soon. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he's doing fine with like NBA. TV. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's happy. And he, he said that he gets to spend more time with his kids or with his kid. Um, and yeah, he's, he's doing stuff for NBA TV. Um, but I mean, he is one of the best basketball minds that I've heard. So if any, team is i mean i know the pistons are looking for a gm and his name is one of the at i mean reportedly at the top of their list so hopefully he gets that if if he wants it all right how would you evaluate your performance during the mock trade deadline because for me i was just totally lost and then even on top of that my expert was wes so it it felt like literally felt like i was working for him for for two days and he was like leading the show you know how you know how all of them they led their own groups differently. Well, mm-hmm. from from my group, it was like Wes was a GM, and everyone else was like assistants or assistant GMs at best. So how's how's that for you? Just utilizing what you knew about the salary cap, but like actually applying it to that exercise. Yeah. So I had Alex Kennedy, who's a writer for Hoops Hype. Hype, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, I didn't know who he was, or I, I didn't realize that I, I didn't connect the dots. I had read his work before and I knew his name was Alex Kennedy, but I, I didn't connect the dots until I, afterwards. Um, uh, I had the Grizzlies and I, that was a humbling example of I, how I was wrong about the outlook of a team. Because when I saw I got the Grizzlies, I was like, oh my gosh, like, they were terrible last year. They just traded Marcus Gasol. They just traded Mike Conley. Like, what is this franchise? They just have a bunch of random contracts. And, um, I mean, and now, like, they, they're maybe going to make the playoffs this year. So, it was – I had never really done that sort – I mean, I feel like most people hadn't done that exercise before, but I kind of – not brushed it off, but – was kind of like, oh, why couldn't I get a better team, you know, like, or like a team that was more fun to analyze and make trades because a lot of people were like, oh, we don't want anyone on your team. We're not going to make any trades. Um, but that exercise was great just to really put your GM hat on for that specific team and try to understand what they're trying to do. Um, and yeah, I, I was definitely one of the only people who was – like well decently versed in this salary cap way of things so there we had a lot of like really smart people who 
knew a lot of basketball, but like maybe came from more the scouting side of things. So they were like, I, I really like this player and we can just trade this player who's not very good on our team and we can get this player. And, and I, <laughs> I, I remember like not wanting to be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but I was like, okay, let me plug this into my spreadsheet. Uh, that trade doesn't work mathematically. And, and I, I, I kind of felt like, I don't know, like the Debbie Downer of the group. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That I, I was looking for the work, but that's, that's exactly how I felt. I was like, well, we can't exactly do that. But yeah, overall the mock trade deadline was one of the best experiences of SBC and Alex was great. And, I got to know everyone on my team a lot better. So that was just a great experience. Mantra deadline for me was reality check number, you know, 57 of the week (laughs) where, you know, coming into it as a Laker fan and not really paying attention to the other teams that much. So I had the Utah jazz. So I had to like, you know, I only knew Donovan Mitchell. I only knew Joe Ingalls and then everyone Mm -hmm. else is just a mystery to me as to how their performance was for the, for that year. Um, yeah, well, with Wes, you know, he, whatever, whatever you remember from him lecturing with, you know, breaking it down, like step-by-step, what are our goals? That's like, well, well, that's what he did with us. You know, we need to talk about our goals, guys. Like what's our goal, first goal, second goal on and on. Yeah. Well, great experience. And then uh, last question, like, oh, do you ever wonder like the salary cap experts in the league where teams that have like that one person that's designated the salary cap person. Mm -hmm. If I, if I could talk to one of them right now, I'd ask like, yeah, you're really good at the salary cap. Like what was it like for you learning how to scout players and actually applying, you know, basketball knowledge to salary cap problems? Yeah. I, I am really interested with the idea of, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'd like to think that I'm on my way to having the understanding of this, the salary cap to like have one of those jobs. But I think the biggest part of it is proving that, you know, enough about basketball and just how, how the game works to like be heard in a front office. Um, And obviously I haven't played basketball at a high level. I don't play in college. I'm not going to play professionally. So I, that's kind of the one area that I'm trying to fill in. I, I feel like I n- know a lot about the salary cap, but you definitely need to get to like the position of like the salary cap guy that everyone um, like listens to in a front office. You really have to be knowledgeable about like, okay, like we can sign this player, but like how will he actually fit on the court? And that's something that I I think you can only get by, you know, listening to a lot of podcasts, watching a lot of games, um, looking at film breakdowns. So that's trying, that's how I'm trying to kind of round out my um, NBA knowledge to hopefully uh, be able to contribute more if I ever get a job with front office eventually. Would your, would you, your dream job kind of be like on the salary cap side of things and be the specialist for the team? Um. I mean, I'm kind of shooting for the stars. I right. one day want to be like the lead executive, like, you know, like the guy um, making the final decision. Um, but I, one of the things that I learned at SBC and have learned just talking with other people that have made it in basketball is, I mean, it's one thing to say that, but you kind of have to find your, your 
niche, whatever that is. And I'd like to think that mine is the salary cap and that's why I'm focusing on that and, you know, updating cap sheets and all that kind of thing, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it, I, it would be absolutely great to be the main guy managing a salary cap for a team, but I hope to combine, you know, salary cap knowledge with my experience as a college athlete and just also just understanding how basketball works to kind of get this all encompassing view of team building and basketball and hopefully be the main guy one day in an organization. And then after leaving SBC and when you hear people online or in person say that they want to become the GM of like the Lakers or something like that, mm-hmm. do you just, do you just think about, do you just see that and you just think like, oh, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about here. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that I've learned is there are so many people with the exact same dream job that I have that are the same age that are doing similar things. Um, and so I know that the only way that I'm ever going to get, you know, remotely close to where I want to be is just working harder than them and 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 not going further than just, you know, emailing random GM and saying, Hey, I want to be the GM of the whatever one day. Like, like there's so much more than that. It's like networking and, and like really finding your passion and like what you can, what, like, you know, you're good at and can, and can contribute to. So yeah, there, I, I, I don't necessarily roll my eyes when I hear someone say, Oh, I want to be the GM of the Lakers one day. But I mean, if they're actually serious about it, like, you know, they're probably going to be my, competition of sorts moving forward so um i'm talking about talking about just like the 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 um what do you call it the armchair armchair gms or the i don't know but like 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 the people on twitter who just kind of criticize everything and say like i could do a better job right those people yeah that's who i was talking about yeah 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 uh just like, you know, for us, like having talked yeah. and having listened yeah, to GM's it's, talk. It's just so much more complicated than that. That's, that's what I would say. I mean, I, I think it's really easy if you're just like, a, you know, casual to, if you're like a casual basketball fan, to be very critical of all these moves and think that you could do a better job with it. And I see that a lot on Twitter. But going to SBC like made me realize there's so much more to basketball decision making. It's like, there's just, it's so complex. And uh, I mean, people at SBC who at work for teams talked about how you get to know like players on such a, and, and their families on like such a personal level that it, you know, it's easy for the casual fan to just plug a player into the trade machine and be like, Oh, we'll just trade these three guys and get these guys back and we can be a better team. But I think as a GM, I mean, not that you wouldn't do that, but there's so much more at stake. There's the relationship that you have with that player. And it's, it's just such a, um, it's like a relationship driven league. So that, that's what I would say to the casual fan is like, Oh, I want to be the GM of the Lakers. All right. All right, buddy, Scott, last question. Any, any goals you, uh, you'd like to accomplish uh, in the next couple of years or just maybe the next year, either in college or just your professional life or just volleyball. Um, as of, I mean, in the next couple of days, I'm I'm trying to do like a deep dive to each NBA team, uh, just an all-encompassing. Like I'm spending an entire day just focusing on where this team stands right now and like what they can do moving forward. 
and I'm trying to do a team a day and I'm going to finish in about 10 days. And I don't exactly know where I'll be after that. Cause I'll just have this huge data set of stuff and hopefully I can do some of the stuff that I've learned in economics, like statistical analysis of, um, that to just kind of add, add something to my resume, like a project or a work sample. But in the next few years, just trying to get through undergrad, um, stay in shape because I only have two more years of volleyball left. So um, just focusing on volleyball school and the NBA was kind of three things that I'm up to. Is this going to be written or audio? Uh, I think it's going to be written. I, this is the first podcast I've ever done, but uh, I podcasting is definitely an idea that I had. I think it's one thing to take the time to write on something, but actually articulating your words is a whole nother thing that can, I, I think podcasting would be a great way to like maybe do a podcast and like deep dive on the Boston Celtics. I bring in one of my Celtics friends, just something like that, but nothing can compare to the, dope post I, I I still remember when you um we were talking to Zach Lowe during SBC and you you stood up and go like you are the reason why I named my podcast the dope post and everyone started clapping and I was like man this guy Adam the dope post is going far so I it's an honor to uh, be a guest on the dope post well thanks for being on the show dude like appreciate it you're, you're a great guest thank you yeah Thank you for having me. All right. You got that feeling.